The Wars of the Roses might reasonably be awarded the subtitle, to borrow from the author Roald Dahl, of Tales of the Unexpected. Because just when you think everything is settled, you discover that really it's not. In August 1485, on the battlefield at Bosworth, Henry Tudor was proclaimed king. Henry had staked his claim on the battlefield and God had given him the victory, whilst at the same time striking down his opponent in the most decisive manner. Yet, what a strange battle it was. How many battles do you know of where most of those present did not actually take part? So, what did the events of Bosworth actually mean? Probably a question posed by many at the time. Did it mean that Henry was acceptable to those who just stood and watched events unfold? Or did it signify that neither Henry nor Richard had particularly unstinting support? Or did it mean that no one cared anymore who was king? And if not Henry, then who? What alternatives were left? Well, Henry might be the undisputed Lancastrian claimant, but there were several members of the House of York who still might throw their hats into the ring, or rather, someone else might throw their hat in for them. Mindful of this, as soon as his victory was assured, Henry sent loyal men north to Sheriff Hutton Castle in Yorkshire, where several people of note had been housed by Richard III. The chief Yorkist representative was Edward Earl of Warwick, the 15-year-old son of Richard's attainted elder brother, George, Duke of Clarence. By birth, no living Yorkist had a better claim. So once Henry had Edward in the tower, it would be very difficult for any diehard Yorkists to rally around anyone else. Well, difficult, but of course in this period, not impossible. Richard had named his nephew, John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, as his successor. But for the time being, Lincoln seemed content to accept Henry as his king. But for how long would Lincoln remain loyal? Let's not forget that though Henry's entourage included several prominent Lancastrians, such as his uncle Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, and John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, the majority of his leading advisers were ex-servants of Edward IV, men who had only supported Henry in the first place as a means of opposing Richard. They were essentially Yorkists, but now Henry must bind them together with his Lancastrian supporters if he wanted to keep his throne. Tudor possession of the throne, which with hindsight seems so inevitable, did not look at all inevitable in 1485. With the recent demise of several of the great Yorkist magnates of England, Hastings, Buckingham and Norfolk, only two such men were left in 1485, Lord Thomas Stanley and Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. At the moment of Henry's victory, Stanley was very much in the ascendant and Percy, of course, was a prisoner. Stanley's eldest son George, Lord Strange, effectively King Henry's stepbrother, was even given Northumberland's command as Warden of the Northern Marches. But of course, fortunes could be easily reversed in this period, and by December 1485, Percy was a free man and reinstalled 
as warden of the northern marches. Why would Henry do that? Well, because the northern marches were a constant source of trouble between England and Scotland. Though the Scottish king, James III, was in theory an ally of the new King Henry, his leading border subjects desired peace about as much as they liked their English counterparts. In other words, not a lot. With his political future in the balance, Henry could not risk the North, which he already suspected of being hostile to his regime, being destabilised by Scottish border attacks. But Lord Strange was not the man for such a task, for the Stanley name hardly sent Scottish raiders into a fit of panic, more likely a fit of laughter. What Henry needed to strengthen his northern defences was a Percy, for the name of Percy inspired courage on one side of the border and trepidation on the other. Fortunately, King Henry happened to have a Percy at his disposal, so he unleashed him in the north. But how loyal would the clearly unreliable Henry Percy be? In the early days of the new Tudor regime, many of those who had joined Henry in exile now got their just rewards, whether by appointment to prominent positions or by receipt of lands. Chief amongst these supporters was John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. Oxford claimed the major credit for the victory at Bosworth, though it was probably not lost on Henry that despite Oxford's valiant efforts, the would-be king would have been killed without the last-ditch intervention of Sir William Stanley. Nevertheless, Oxford was showered with rewards. He was appointed Great Chamberlain, Lord Admiral of England, and Constable of the Tower of London. Meanwhile, Henry's loyal uncle Jasper was elevated to Duke of Bedford, a title with close association to the House of Lancaster, since it had been that of Henry V's brother. Jasper, now in his fifties, had sacrificed all to establish his nephew, and now he must look to his own life and legacy. With that in mind, he decided to get married to the 27-year-old widow of the Duke of Buckingham, Catherine Woodville. You have to feel a bit sorry for Catherine, the sister of Elizabeth Woodville. She was first married at the age of seven to a ten-year-old boy, and now to a man twice her age. Jasper was not the only recipient of a title. Edward Courtney, a staunch Lancastrian, received the Earldom of Devon, while Thomas Stanley was made Earl of Derby and Constable of England. One man who did not receive a peerage, nor much else in the way of reward, was Lord Stanley's brother, Sir William. As I've said, had it not been for him, then Henry would most likely have perished on the field of Bosworth. Yet William Stanley was overlooked, and merely retained the offices he held under Richard, and even those he had to ask for. This might well rankle in the years to come with such an ambitious man. On Sunday, October the 30th, Henry was crowned king with much ceremony, and prominent in this lavish state occasion were Jasper Tudor, Thomas Stanley, and John de Vere, for they were to be the pillars of the new regime. In November, Henry met his first parliament and asserted his right to be king by inheritance and by God's verdict in battle. Parliament, no doubt weary of such matters, 
simply ignored all the rival claim nonsense and just said that Henry was king. He insisted that his reign was backdated to the day before Bosworth, the 21st of August, so that those who fought against him might be seen in law as traitors. This was not a very popular decision, for all those who supported Richard of Bosworth did so in good faith, believing him to be their anointed monarch. If such matters could be changed after the fact, then where would it all end? In addition, all crown lands granted since 1455 were to be taken back, though for obvious reasons a very, very large number of them were listed as exceptions. Yet, after all this, there was still one piece of the royal jigsaw missing. Where was the new queen? For had Henry not sworn an oath to marry the heiress of Edward IV, Elizabeth of York? Well, there was no queen, and some of Henry's Yorkist supporters were most disgruntled about it, especially since all the pageantry they saw seemed to show the old Beaufort symbol of a portcullis, the red rose of Lancaster, and the Welsh dragon of Tudor. But where was the white rose of York, they wondered. There are several issues here, the main one being Henry's reluctance to imply that his crown depended in any way on Elizabeth's Yorkist claim. A marriage might heal some old wounds, but it was not to be the basis of his kingship. There was also a legal impediment yet to be removed. Richard III's act of titulus regulus had, amongst other things, declared all Edward IV's children to be illegitimate. It would need to be repealed, and Henry left Parliament in no doubt that repeal was only the half of it. The act was, quote, to be void, annulled, repealed, burnt, and utterly destroyed. So he really didn't like it very much. By the time the House of Commons petitioned Henry to marry Elizabeth in December 1485, negotiations were already being started to remove another obstacle to the marriage. The Pope needed to grant a dispensation to allow the marriage. As it turned out, the dispensation was not finally granted until March 1486. Yet Henry married Elizabeth in mid-January. Perhaps after all the delay, the sudden haste was explained by the birth of his first son Arthur, only eight months later. Elizabeth, though, would not be crowned queen until November 1487. Even after the king's marriage, there were still men about who presented an immediate threat to his kingship. Men such as Lord Francis Lovell. Francis Lovell had been a long-time friend and loyal supporter of Richard III. As Richard's Lord Chamberlain, and close confidant, he was inextricably identified with the Ricardian regime. After Bosworth, Lovell and Humphrey Stafford fled to seek sanctuary in Colchester, where they remained for some months. But in April 1486, the two men escaped with the intention of raising a revolt against the new king. Francis Lovell headed north to stir up trouble in Yorkshire, where support for Richard had been strong while Stafford joined with his brother Thomas to raise a rebellion in Worcestershire. 
By April 1486, Henry himself was on a trip north, keen to stamp his authority on what he expected to be a difficult region to control. In the end, Henry's mere arrival in York on the 23rd of April was enough to scatter the pathetic force that Francis Lovell had managed to raise. Since Northumberland greeted Henry in the city, it was clear that a rebellion would not have any Percy backing. When Jasper Tudor rode out with a handful of pardons, even some prominent gentry families close to Richard, like the Conyers, the Metcalfs and the Huddlestons, had had enough, and seeing no point in further resistance, accepted their pardons and went home. After all, who would these dyed-in-the-wool Neville men be fighting for now? The old Earl of Warwick was long dead, and his two Neville daughters as well. Were these men prepared to fight and die, to see one of Richard's nephews on the throne? Clarence's son Edward might have inherited the Warwick title, but he was a mere shadow of a youth. And John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln? Well, who or what was he? Where the likes of Conyers and Metcalfe feared to tread, many others too were inclined to hold back and accept the new king. Most did so, and only a few remaining diehards, like Lovell himself, fled abroad. But what of the Staffords in Worcestershire? Well, their attempt at rebellion collapsed just as easily. The Stafford brothers tried sanctuary again, this time at Cullum near Abingdon. But Henry wasn't having any of that a second time. Rather reminiscent of Edward IV's actions after Tewkesbury, the right of sanctuary was ignored and the conspirators were dragged out. Though the rest were pardoned, Humphrey Stafford was executed. An example had to be made. Overall, Henry must have been overjoyed by the ease of his triumph over a couple of significant rebels. And, with his most prominent rival claimant, Edward Earl of Warwick, in his pocket, Henry could rest easy at last. Uh, well, not quite. <laughs>